What's up, everyone? This is episode 218 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right, guys, so last week, as I was discussing my ComC Mail Day, I brought up the topic of binders. I get so many questions about binders, and while I have a couple styles I like, and you've heard me talk about them before, the Z folios and the card guards, it seems like I've never quite figured out the perfect binder configuration for my collection. I think I'm getting closer, though. It's just going to take some more trial and error. And a lot of the ideas I've had so far have come from posts I've seen on social media, where there might be cards in random binder pages, or binders on shelves in the background. Sometimes I've even messaged people and said, hey, you know, can you show me a little bit more of that binder so I can get an idea of what I might want to do myself? Well, you know, all that stuff that's in the background, it's time to bring that stuff into focus. And this is where you guys come in. On last week's episode, I asked you to weigh in on this topic, to tell me about your binder configurations, and I figured, you know, why don't we just start off with that today? I'm going to share a couple of those responses with you here real quick in this opening segment. Hey Kyle, it's Ryan, MindCycle underscore cards on Instagram or on YouTube, and I have three binders to cover today. If you hear some noises in the background, you're listening to this on the podcast, I am doing a video on this as well. The first one up is just a regular old binder. And this one I'm showing off here has my 2009-10 Tops of Basketball collection. It's actually the full set. And I really like the Ultra Pro pages for these. I like the silver pages or the platinum. Really nice for like full sets of cards. I also do Nuggets team sets from different releases throughout the year and just put them in a regular old binder. Next up, we have the Ultra Premium binders. And so these are actually really nice for like higher end cards, cards that you may want to keep more secure. This one I'm showing off here actually is my Tim Duncan PC. I do this for a lot of my player PCs and like higher end cards. The really nice thing about them is that you can use a penny sleeve and put them into the binder sleeve and it keeps them just nice and secure in there and it presents really well. And along the same lines, the third one I have here is the BCW Z Folio binders. These are actually my preferred binders and you're gonna hear here, has a little zipper on it, keeps things nice and secure. Really along the same line as the Ultra Pro binder, presents really well and you have that ability again to put the card in a penny sleeve and put it into the binder page. It just keep, keeps things nice and secure in there and I have no problems with like higher end cards putting these in these binders and they work really well. Well, what's up Kyle? You know with these correspondent here checking in regarding binders within the PC. I have um, two primary uses for binders. So I use the BCW Z Folios XLs. They hold 12 cards per page. Um, I can comfortably fit up to a 75 point card in those with them being in a penny sleeve. First, I use binders for my player PCs. So I don't do the team PCs like some of your listeners do. Um, I organize them by player and then within each player, they're organized by release year. So for example, I have a player PC for all my Paul Pierce refractors and prisms. That goes from 98 to 99, and then within each year, they're organized by release. So Finest, Chrome, Prism, Select, etc. And uh, my Jay Crowder binders work the same way, where they start from release from his rookie year up until present day, and they're organized by release within each you know season. 
The second use of a binder I have is by theme. So I have a binder that's just for kind of obscure things I like to collect, but I organize them within a theme to keep myself focused. So within that binder, I have cards that depict favorite moments of my fandom. So Malcolm Butler's Super Bowl winning interception, David Ortiz's post-marathon bombing speech, etc. All those cards are in one section of that binder. I have autographs from professional basketball players and coaches from Massachusetts. All, all of those are in one section of that binder. I have autographs from the Celtics championship team from 2008. All those are in one section of that binder. So either player binders or one sort of miscellaneous binder, but organized by theme. All right. Hope you enjoyed that and hope it works out. Take care, everyone. All right. So thanks again to those guys for taking the time to record those and send them in. Maybe you've got a setup you like that is drastically different from theirs. Feel free to record me a quick message telling me about it. Send it on over to waxmuseumpodcast at gmail.com and you might even hear yourself on a future episode of the show. Okay, on to the mail where I received one package this week from the PWCC vault, which is going to seem pretty ironic after today's main segment, but just bear with me here. This shipment had seven cards total, some of which purchased as long ago as September or October, I think, but the fulfillment fee reduces from 3% to 1% over time, and even though I didn't have anything super valuable there, I'm playing the long game here, so I took my sweet time requesting that stuff to get it shipped out and let those fees reduce as much as I possibly could, Uh, and once I did request that package, it showed up pretty quick. Now, you might have seen me post about this on my stories, My only complaint was that they didn't sleeve any of the slabs, which was all the cards, and some of them got a little bit scuffed up. So for as efficient as everything else was, that seemed kind of careless to me. You know, why not just do that? And then that sticker that you put on the back of the slab, you could just put that on the back of the sleeve as well. I don't know, just seemed kind of strange to me. Otherwise, it was a very smooth buying process overall. Um, As far as the cards themselves, I'm going to start with the older stuff and then work my way forward. Uh, First off, I got three SGC slabbed 1957 tops cards for my set. Um, I got Med Park, which graded a 4. I got Art Spolstra, which graded a 5.5. And then I got Win Wilfong, which graded a 4. And you can see here, that's kind of the grade range I'm looking to get with these, unless it's one of the bigger names and I have to settle for less. But most of those I grabbed in the $20 to $30 range. That's kind of my goal uh, instead of paying to slab a bunch of cards myself, if I can buy them for you know a little bit more than it would cost to get them slabbed, I find it's just easier to do it that way. So that's kind of my approach there with that 57 set. Now, you might remember when I made my goals at the start of the year, I had all intentions of talking about every 1957 tops card over the course of the year. And when I say talk about, I wanted to do like a player bio. I wanted to give you some cool facts about them. I wanted to give you some cool facts about the set. Um, You know, technically the year's not over yet, but I think I've done zero so far. I mean, I know I've talked about Bill Russell in in passing here, but not to the capacity that I've wanted. So instead of trying to rush through some information about these three guys, I think I'm going to put that goal to the side for now. It might be something that I revisit in the summer, but it is nonetheless a project that I'm looking forward to Uh, It just wasn't meant to be this year, and that's fine. Okay, the next three cards that I picked up were all very similar cards. Um, Same player, same set, same type of card. 
It was a trio of Jason Richardson patches from 2005-2006 Tops Big Game, and it was three of the letters from Warriors on the front of the jerseys. It was an O and then the two R's, or two of the R's, I should say. And um, there were a few other letters up as well over the course of several weeks. I probably should have grabbed those two, but these were the three I felt were a good deal at the price they landed at. Uh, It definitely helped me that they were all listed at once. I I think that made them look a lot less appealing. Um, And you know what? I'm going to keep one of these for sure, but I'll probably split them up at some point. Not in the near future, but they might make nice trade bait for something similar down the line. You guys know I love that set. And um, one more thing about these, though. The funny thing is that uh, one of them, even though it's a Jason Richardson card, uh, one of them, the player pictured on the back of the letter R's, is definitely Michael Pietras. So I've talked about Panini's photo goose over the last couple years. It's only fair that I talk about some of Topps's as well. And, and trust me, that's not the first one. Um, so anyway, I, I thought that was worth sharing. I thought that was kind of funny. All right, the final card I had shipped in this batch uh, was a 2015-2016 Panini Revolution Galactic Rookie of Joe Young in a PSA 9 slab. Now, um, you know, I say it's in a slab. I've already talked about binders today. I'm definitely thinking about a Galactic page because it's getting to that point. So this card might end up in a binder before all is said and done. Uh, I'm still not super excited about cracking slabs, but in some cases it makes more sense for me. Um, it, it also helps that this one was pretty cheap because there's been a flood of Galactics on PWCC as of late. Uh, a lot of them are showing up, and I, I think I got this for like 11 bucks. Um, now, that's not to say that, you know, that rush of Galactics made the price drop all that much. I mean, it is Joe Young, so it's not worth much to begin with, but if I can get Pacers in that range, I'm going to continue picking those up, and like I said, I think I'm going to end up building a binder page out of it in the process. Anyway, if you want to see uh, how those cards were packed out, I know I talked about that, or you just want to see what they look like, I uploaded that video to my YouTube channel. Feel free to check that out if you'd like. All right, before I move into today's conversation, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 31 million trading cards, From baseball's biggest stars like Shohei Otani, Aaron Judge, and Mookie Betts, to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man, Thor, and Captain America. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. Additionally, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my eBay affiliate link. And using this link costs you absolutely nothing just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time, but it helps support the show. To access this link, simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com, click the eBay logo, shop as planned, so whatever you are going to buy anyway, just click my link first, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo. And now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so you've probably seen them by now, but there were a couple of hobby headlines this week that made it feel like we were back in 2019 again. And I thought it was kind of ironic that they both surfaced at the same time. You'll see what I mean by that here in a little bit. 
The first of those two headlines came from former NFL player Evan Mathis, who put out a very uh, detailed five-and-a-half-minute tutorial on how to trim vintage cards. And Evan's name had already come up multiple times over the last few years in some of the altered card headlines. There was a pretty lengthy blowout thread in December of 2019 that claimed that Evan trimmed cards and resold them via Probstein, PWCC, and ComC. And I think, you know, that thread, I think, is still going. I think it's past 70 pages now. Um, Despite him having an account on the blowout forums, Evan elected not to offer up any sort of substantial defense. I think he posted a Monty Python clip instead, which, you know, the lack of a defense doesn't necessarily mean he's guilty of anything, but it was all just very bizarre the way everything went down. But not as bizarre as him posting this elaborate trimming tutorial some, you know, three and a half years later. And I was speaking with a friend about it the other day, trying to think of a reason why Evan would want to do that. And, you know, we've got our our suspicions, but nothing that I want to put out there in public. Uh, you know, I can't really wrap my head around the everything here. So someone asked him on TikTok, they just asked him directly, hey, why would you do this? And he replied, pure entertainment, I guess. And later on, Sports Card Radio chimed in with, funny how you said you never did this, scrub. To which Evan responded, find that quote. So the whole thing seemed kind of brash. And while there were plenty of other people voicing their displeasure in the comments, it was surprising to see how many people seemingly applauded the video or more or less endorsed it in some way as well. You might have seen Dan the Cardman's recent video about it on YouTube this week. I thought he did a really good job of addressing that. But uh, one of the comments that I saw simply said, legendary. And when other people pushed back on that, the poster replied, the fact he is educating people on space that was never put in the forefront. And the first question in my mind is never put in the forefront. Where have you been? Between the LeBron exquisite stuff in late 2018 and the PWCC trimming scandal after that, trimming was the biggest topic in the hobby for nearly a year and a half. So much so that it received mainstream coverage in outlets like Forbes, the New York Times, the Washington Post, just to name a few. And while this was information that needed to come out, it brought with it a dark cloud that loomed over our hobby and to an extent still looms to this day. And it pissed a lot of people off in the process. So it wouldn't surprise me, or it shouldn't be surprising then, that a lot of that animosity hasn't completely gone away. And that was evident as I combed through some of the responses to headline number two, which was that PWCC laid off at least 30 employees over the past week. Now, unfortunately, I think we can expect to see more of this type of stuff in the near future with some of the other hobby companies. And even though it's to be expected, it doesn't make it any less disappointing to the people and the families involved. So I want to be sensitive to that. But as I alluded to earlier, some of the responses to this news reflected some of the animosity that had developed toward the company at an earlier time. And if you've just entered into the hobby or re-entered the hobby in 2020 or later, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Because I feel like you know PWCC has put forth a very concerted effort to change the narrative about them over the last few years. And I suppose they've done a pretty good job of it too. Because gone are the days where... It's just the CEO and his wife posting on message boards. 
or the CEO hiding behind the curtains at the 2019 National, like he's the Wizard of Oz or something. That seems like so long ago, but it wasn't. And there are still people out there, obviously, that remember when all that went down. One of the more civil responses that I read to this uh, whole PWCC situation on Reddit, this person said, I don't particularly have a high opinion of PWCC's leadership, but I do enjoy shopping their auctions and using their vault to save on sales tax and combined shipping costs. And as you can see by my mail day today, I'm pretty much in the same boat. And you almost have to be if you're going to operate or use any of the hobby companies that are out there right now. Um, you know, if I were to get rid of all the hobby companies or stop doing business with the, all the ones that have done questionable stuff, I'm not going to own much of anything. That's manufacturers and marketplaces alike. So just know that people have drawn their line in the sand at different spots. I'm not telling you where to draw yours at. You know, you've kind of seen where I've drawn mine. It is what it is. Um, but I do want to take some time today to review PWCC's response to the 2019 trimming scandal that I covered in the early days of this show is one of the first topics I covered because number one, it seems like some people don't realize how big of a scar it's left on the hobby. Number two, it will help explain some of the animosity that exists for the company even today. And number three, it's yet another reminder of just how much we need companies that we can trust. Okay, so some of you have been with me for a long time. You might remember that I did a two-part episode about PWCC with Adam, the Real 27 guy on Instagram. Uh, I think that was episodes 11 and 12. I suggest, you know, go back and listen to those if you haven't already. Um, a lot has happened since then, including the fact that Adam works for them now, which, you know, obviously neither one of us anticipated back then, but he gets to showcase a lot of cool cards for them every month. Not too bad of a gig, right? So... I'm sure you've seen a lot of the content he's made for their site. Uh, but our conversation back in 2019 was largely a commentary on a conversation that Josh had with PWCC's CEO Brent on Cardboard Chronicles. And that conversation was largely a response to the big card trimming scandal that all came to light via the detective work of the blowout forums. Now, I find it really challenging to capture... Uh, the weight of this scandal at that time, but just know it was a really, really big deal, and a lot of stuff surfaced in the process. Bad stuff, obviously. The best recap I've seen of this is a six-minute YouTube video by a user named Vintage Card Curator. He was a real curator, I, I should add. Um, it's called Rigged System, the PWCC and PSA Fraud Scandal. So please watch that if you can. It will give you some context in addition to what I'm going to try to give you in this short time today. Either way, this whole situation showed that essentially PWCC had been used as a front to move altered cards in a way that let the bad guys remain nameless and faceless. And there were some people that made very strong arguments that perhaps PWCC was more than just a front, that they might have been involved in it as well. You can look through some of the old blowout threads and newspaper articles and uh, figure out if you're on that side or not. You know, I'm not going to, to tell you to take that side or whatever. Just know that uh, that has been floated out there as well. Anyway, Brent's rhetoric throughout a lot of this conversation didn't sit well with a lot of people. And I want to give you some very specific examples. He started off by trying to explain the difference between card conservation and card alteration and it sounded like he was trying to redefine those two terms in ways the hobby certainly wasn't ready for. 
the justification being that restoration practices are more common in other collectible categories like art and comics. And then a little later on, he started to shift the onus of this whole thing onto the grading companies, which I thought was a good route to take. You know, sure, PWCC could have taken a more active role in combating fraud, but these were slabbed cards, and the grading companies are supposed to be able to, de- to detect that stuff. He even said, quote, We're not a pro-grading company, and we're certainly not going to try to insert ourselves in that decision. So, I was with him for a little bit, but the problem with that stance is, you know, we all know they have a PWCC I appeal sticker that attempts to do just that. It's saying that something presents better than the technical grade. And it's certainly not there to suppress pricing. So a lot of people took issue with that as well. Um, after that, another example. Brent claimed the company was taking the lead to get the topic of card trimming addressed with the grading companies. But we all know this has been going on forever and hadn't seriously been addressed until this time. Only after all these collectors had exposed these altered cards on the message boards and the pressure was on. He was trying to present the company in a very proactive light when the fact of the matter was this appearance and then the sudden creation of their marketplace tenants at the same time proved that it was all more reactive. Combine that with phrases like, this may be our brightest moment, this is the stage of healing, (laughs) this is our opportunity to be the face of healing. I think it's safe to say that people saw through that. And then on top of that, Top of all that, we got the infamous online pictures are not evidence quote before he later described those same before and after pictures as the new game-changing evidence that now allowed the company to pursue these fraudsters like never before. You know, which one is it then? It was all very confusing and the earlier attempts to redefine certain hobby terms was woven into that as well. My favorite string of quotes in this whole thing was probably as follows. He said, I'm not interested in my company or PSA just writing a blank check. I want the people who submitted the cards refunding this market and then committing to not doing it again. I want the pain to flow right where it needs to flow. And now I want to transport us back to 2023. Subsequent reports show us that the FBI eventually got involved with some of the card trimming stuff although I don't know how much because it doesn't sound like they ever got the buy-in they needed from the Department of Justice. Uh, It looks like some people were compensated for their altered cards, but I really don't know how to gauge if the pain flowed right where it needed to flow. I don't have a good read on that. My guess is that it probably hasn't. If someone like Evan Mathis feels confident enough to post a video like he did this past week. And don't get me wrong... There's nothing illegal about him trimming his own cards at home. The problem becomes, well, really, there's multiple problems with it, but the main one being, you know, when cards like this are moved through the grading companies and then the marketplaces and eventually the buyers on the other side, even if all those people that end up with the card, if all of those parties had good intentions, they still end up with a problem on their hands. Um, And now that we know that, what are the powerful companies in the hobby doing to protect us? And while I don't think Evan's video was legendary, like someone else said, maybe that's the point he was trying to make. Now that he's spent quite a bit of time in the hobby, in the vintage market specifically, he even CC'd Nat Turner on this post and added, 
This is how all your vintage cards got high grades, DIY using these techniques. Then he put a little uh, hands making a heart emoji. How cute, right? Um, Now, once again, though, that is very brash. But he brings up a good point in bringing up the grading companies. In fact, that's where Adam and I then took our conversation back in 2019 to grading reform because it seemed like the next logical step. And Evan mentioned PSA specifically. They've gone through some major changes since 2019 as well, primarily uh, their new leadership. And I thought they made another great move back in April of 2021 when they acquired a company called Geniment. And I want to read a part of that press release for you here again real quick, just so you get an idea of what Geniment either is supposed to do or was supposed to do. I don't know. It says, Geniment Technology analyzes each trading card in real time and is able to provide diagnostics, measurements, and detect alterations or other changes made to a card surface in an effort to assist human graders. It will also provide unique card identification or card fingerprinting by identifying the exact card in order to track provenance, resubmissions, condition changes, and other attributes over time. Now, unfortunately, we've since heard very little from them about this technology or its founder. I think he was moved into sales, if the information I've seen is correct. Uh, This would be a great time for PSA to show us that this Genement tech is being used and show us how it actually works, if that is the case at all. You know, it's 2023. The truth of the matter is we need hobby companies to stop with all the rhetoric, right? You saw the response to that. You saw how people feel about that already with PWCC. Stop just telling us to trust you and give us concrete reasons to do so instead. Until then, we're going to continue to see a slow but steady rise in people that think it's okay to hack away at cards or use their card alteration kits. And you know what? That's a place I never thought we would get to four short years ago. But that's a place that, unfortunately, the leadership of these hobby companies have allowed us to get to. All right, well, there you have it. I know there was a lot of stuff packed into a really short amount of time there. Maybe there was something I talked about today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.